0: To a cause
1: goodness to you, I'll tell how the young is coming here to dwell. Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you
2: on? Hi everyone. My name is Fraser McGuire. I'm a member of Young Labour's National Committee and an active member of Unite Hospitality which represents works in one of the most exploitative sectors in the country. I'm really pleased to be chairing this event tonight, bringing together people from the forefront of the resistance to this rally, which has been co-hosted by Socialist Future in Young Labour and Labour students. And we're really delighted to be with you here today. Hundreds of you have registered your interest in advance of this event, and many more will be joining us on social media as we end Rise Festival 2023. More and more people are fed up with paying for a crisis that we didn't create, a crisis created by the reactionary Tories and the profiteering bosses. As part of the growing resistance to this, tonight we're bringing together a wide range of voices to stand in solidarity with all of those fighting for a better future. Please, as the event goes on, donate to the link provided so Rise Festival can continue hosting these important events and make sure you support the other campaigns and links put in the chat throughout the event. Please also make sure to follow Socialist Future on social media as it's vital that we maintain left-wing voices within the Labour Party's youth ring. I'm pleased now to move on to hearing to these voices from the front line against Tory attacks, coming together to amplify our collective power and also coming together to put the case for a socialist future, where public need comes before corporate greed. I'm now going to move on to our speakers. First, we have Zach Vallely, uh, a PCS Young member and branch secretary of the London branch of HM Passport Office, who are on strike for five weeks.
0: In April and May. Over to you, Zach. Yeah, so uh, as said, uh, my name is Zach. I'm uh, I'm a rep uh, with PCS. Um, I'm based at London Passport Office. Um, because of our rules about impartiality, I need to make it clear that I'm speaking my capacity as a PCS rep, but not as a civil servant. So um, PCS is the main union um, for civil servants. Um, we represent about 193,000 um, public and, and um, civil servants at the moment, um, and we've been in um, a dispute with the government over paying conditions for um, most of the last year. Um, we often face um, some difficulties as as PCS that many um, in the public think of us Uh, When they think of civil servants, think of bowler hat wearing Sir a Humphrey's sat in smoky rooms, kind of making up rules, uh, not really doing any work. But that's really, really not um, true. Uh, A lot of our members are incredibly hardworking public servants, very dedicated to what they do. Um, And our pay situation isn't uh, in line with what Sir Humphrey um, used to get either. Um, Many of our workers are working in admin grades in um, frontline offices outside of London, job centre, HMRC, passport office, uh, delivering services that the public relies on um three and four civil servants are, are paid under um 40,000 pounds a year. Um so because of that we were hit by um rising the cost of living very hard and our membership really struggled with it. Um uh, we were given a 2% pay rise last year when inflation was uh, soaring at more than 10%. Um that led to significant hardship for our members. Um thanks to research that PCS did um a- around um the difficulties our members were facing we found that one in 12 of our mem- uh, one in 12 civil servants um that's 40,000 we using food banks. 45,000 were claiming in work benefits that as civil servants we administer ourselves. Uh, in the passport office um, our staff are enabling um, thousands if not millions of uh, British holiday makers to go on holiday every year but unable to afford holidays ourselves um, and we many PCS reps will, will be able to share horror stories of uh, members of staff coming to them um, in tears not knowing how to pay their bills, not knowing how to balance their budgets and um, the only help they get from our departments is a cost of living pack because uh the money just wasn't there for them um so in this environment uh we held a ballot to go on strike in october november last year uh and we won despite all the challenges that um trade unionists face uh in this day and age um winning that has, has kind of breathed new life into the union in many ways it's shown um the potential of collective action it's shown that we, we contend and we we challenge the government uh on issues that, that go right to the heart of the welfare of our members, like pay. Um, and we've pursued a novel strategy in this, which I, th- I think is is quite new to the movement as a whole and and um, certainly quite new to PCS. Historically, we, we did a lot of one day action across the whole civil service where we take the whole civil service out for a day, uh, once or twice a month, and they didn't really have much effect. It's quite easy to plan around a single day. Uh, but what we've pursued this time has been um, a, a series of planned, targeted actions where Basically, we've, we've increased our membership um, fee on our members and we've taken that money, put it in a strike fund and then used that strike fund to um, pay people in, in targeted areas to go on um, action for extended periods of time um, where it will have the most effect. So um, in, in the past office where I work, we were kind of the centrepiece of that strategy where um, we took out 1500 staff um, for five weeks um, with more staff joining us in the last week. Uh, an action such as that has been really, really effective, really hard hitting, and um, it's been of the kind that uh, I think the government wasn't really expecting us to be able to, to muster, based on um, the kind of what we've done in the past. Um, the strategy has has worked. Um, the, the, this kind of new new look um, industrial action, um, targeted action, supported by we've also gone on strike for one day, where we have taken all civil service out. We don't cover people's pay in that instance, but we cover pay for the long targeted actions, and we've won significant concessions. Um, we were initially told we get paid 2% two percent pay rise again this year after 2% last year. Uh, that was later up to 4.5 to 5%, so more than doubled. And recently after our, our national conference, in which we sounded very bullish about how we were going to continue to take the fight forward, um, all civil servants have been given um, £1,500 cost of living payments. Um, we're also really proud of our um, our ability. Uh, the Conservative government was elected in 2019 with the manifesto promise to cut civil service redundancy terms by 33 percent. And in the most recent concessions, we've been told that our, our terms won't be looked at until the next parliament. So we've staved off that manifesto pledge for an entire parliament. So the movement has been resilient enough, the trade union movement, to overcome whatever challenges have been put in front of us. Um, the imposed 50 percent threshold, postal ballots. Uh, and even in our case, members feeling that they're unable to afford to go on strike. We found a way to um, to lessen the burden on members by um, taking a levy over a certain period of months and then using that to fund action in areas where it hits hardest. Um, and we've won real concessions um, for our members as a result of that. Um, thank you very much for having me along and hearing about PCS's Dispute.
2: Thank you very much, That That's really inspiring to hear from not just how hard you're fighting back, but that you're also showing uh, the strength of taking industrial action and how being in a union, taking that action can win as well, which I'm sure is inspiring to a lot of people watching. Um, next, we're going to go over to Patrick Foley uh, from Arise Festival volunteer team, who's just going to speak to you all for a few minutes. Thank you,
3: Fraser. And yeah, great to hear from Zacho. It's always really positive hearing the first-hand frontline stories of uh, people taking action, and who've been winning over the last 18 months, you know, really inspiring stuff. I just wanted to take a couple of minutes just to thank everyone who's taken part in Arise over the last month. You know, it's been a a fantastic month-long people-powered festival. We've had thousands of you register, even more watch and tune in on the streams. And it's just been a really inspiring thing to be a part of and see our movement come together around all these key issues for the left. I'd like to mention some of the key ones we held, even at the beginning, defending our right to resist. Uh, We've had some really quite thought-provoking socialist ideas, sessions on Gramsci, on uh, Sylvia Pankhurst. We've had things on the climate, solidarity movements, on the case for Labour Party democracy, all these amazing sessions. And it's been just a privilege to have so many of you take part in them. None of it would be possible without the support of of people engaging like yourselves watching right now. So what I'm really here to do today is ask you to give a bit of your support to Arise Festival so we can keep bringing events like these uh, uh, to the movement and keep bringing our movement together around on such crucial issues. So if everyone who took part in the call today could donate £20 or whatever they can afford, it would really secure the future of our organisation and really mean that we can push on to do more important work like we've been doing over the last month. Uh, it's been fantastic to see our, our festival and our platform grow so much. It's, it, you know, I think it's the fifth anniversary of rise Festival this year. We've gone from in-person events uh, in in central london and expanded beyond the scope we could ever imagine and now we're reaching thousands if not tens of thousands of people with our with our events and it's really really positive thing to be involved in so please 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 consider donating whatever you can afford today uh, as part of the closing festival and um, thank you for everyone who's bought tickets thank you for everyone who's donated so far it really really is quite a special thing to be a part of i'd also like to just mention that we want to get as much out of this festival as possible and once these events happen they're not gone the amazing politics that goes on within the the amazing lessons that we can learn from the senior academics from the leading trade unions for everyone who's been involved in it, it's still there and you can still engage with it so if you have missed any sessions go back and watch them on the youtube go and listen to the uh to the spotify to the podcast on spotify or on apple music or wherever you get your podcasts and just get stuck in you know it's really really great stuff to be involved in and and there's so much that we've covered over the last month. And I bet, you know, even the most committed of you, I bet you haven't been there for all of it. So do go and have a look, uh, look back through what we got up there. There'll be a few links. And I will just end on this one final plea. Please, please, please do what you can. Uh, donate to Rise Festival. We also have an option to become a friend of Rise Festival with a monthly donation just to really ensure that we can keep bringing our movement together. So thank you so much for the time, Fraser. And um, back to
2: you and enjoy the rest of the session. Thank you very much, Patrick. And yeah, I'd just like to uh, echo that about especially donating to support Arise. I mean, in the face of the billionaire press who we know aren't on our side, it's even more important that we're able to hold important events like this because no one's going to help us. We have to make these narratives and fight back by ourselves. And it's only uh, groups like Arise who put things on like that, that as a left, we're able to properly articulate and come together. Um, next, we're going over to a fantastic member of the SCG and a fantastic member of Parliament who's going to speak to us, uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey, uh, MP.
4: Thanks, Fraser, and thanks for having me on Arise. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honour as always. Now, there's not a week that goes past at the minute without discussion about a group of workers considering taking strike action or actually taking strike action. this week's been no different and I just want to make the point that we all know workers don't want to be on strike it's a last resort and the reason that we're seeing so many workplaces taking strike action now is because the government hasn't listened to them when they've raised the alarm on low pay erosion of their terms and conditions and also concerns about the safety and future of their sectors they're desperate They feel that no one has listened to them and they can't take any more. And it's important to remember that 10 years ago, we didn't see this level of strike action. Of course, there were certain workplaces that exercised their right to strike. But we're certainly seeing a growing um, determination by workers to speak out about what's happening to them. And that's good to see, but it shouldn't be like that because they shouldn't have to do it. Because the strikes essentially are a symptom of how broken our economy is. They're a symptom of how workers can't make ends meet after 13 years of austerity, wage erosion, widespread insecurity. And it's all exacerbated by the cherry on the top now, the cost of living crisis. Now. When we look at the cost of living debate, it's been quite exasperating for many of us, I think, over the last year with soaring inflation and interest rates instead of government support or actually tackling the root causes of inflation. We've seen calls for wage restraint. We've heard the prime minister say that we just need to hold our nerve as millions are struggling to survive and people are now at risk of losing their homes and livelihoods. And the economic arguments around it are just preposterous. Um, For over a year, there have been voices trying to convince us all that we can't have higher wages because if we have higher wages, we'll end up in a wage price spiral. And that's despite the fact that voices of reason for over a year have been trying to explain very articulately that the reasons for inflation aren't because workers are being paid too much or because they're asking for more wages. The reasons that we're seeing inflation is, firstly, the war in Ukraine, secondly, supply chain issues as a result of the pandemic, but thirdly, and more importantly, profiteering. That was a point that people were making on the left over a year ago, and they were mocked for making that point. Yet, interestingly, yesterday... The Bank of England suggested that some retailers are jacking up prices or failing to pass on lower costs to consumers as a way of increasing their profit margin. And even the IMF, not especially left wing uh, in terms of their, uh, their kind of general policy direction, they actually said yesterday that rising corporate profits were the largest contributor to Europe's inflation So the arguments that have been made by many across the left for over a year are now starting to become mainstream. But now that they're mainstream, are we going to see the responses required to actually tackle that? And so far, we haven't seen anything at all from government. We've not even seen a recognition from government that inflation has been caused by profiteering or greedflation, as many like to call it. Now, as a movement, there's a few things that I think we need to be calling for. The first is that we need to make sure that we have short-term support for people urgently. And that means looking at things such as price controls um, or even supermarket agreements to temporarily provide minimum or maximum prices for specific goods. Some are doing it now. as Sainsbury's announced it this week, but I don't think it's happening across the board. And, And these controls are effective, Uh, on a short-term basis but we also need to make sure that we're seeing action on things such as rent as well so rent controls certainly need to be something that's explored by the government before these rents spiral out of control and people start to lose their homes which is happening in many big cities as it is already. Now on mortgages specifically the government has been really Really complacent in terms of how they responded to it, now, on the labor side, we've been asking for lenders to swap to interest only mortgages for a short period of time and lengthening terms of mortgages and that's that's good. It's all well and good, but for many people, extending their mortgage terms just isn't feasible. Most people borrow up to the hilt to get their first home and they get the maximum mortgage term possible, usually, and then remortgage after that every time their deal runs out, sometimes extending the term of their mortgage. And in many cases, lots of people's mortgages run out when they actually retire. So they don't have the ability to extend their mortgage. So any mortgage extension puts them at risk of losing their home later in life when they're less likely to be able to get another job when they've retired. And they probably won't have a considerable amount of income. So what do we do about this? Well, this week, one of my constituents said to me, they said, we bailed out the banks when they needed us. Why can't they repay some of this and bail the people out now when we need them? And that's a really interesting proposition. And it's one that John McDonnell has been exploring already over the past few weeks. It's clear that the big five banks um, owe the public for the financial bailout after the banking crash. And at the moment, they're taking in enormous profits. Unite did an interesting report recently and found that UK banks... Had made an extra £7 billion just by refusing to pass on higher interest rates to savers. £7 billion. So, why can't that money be used to shoulder some of the burden that people who are trying to pay their mortgages face? That's sensible. And I think it's pragmatic. And I hope that that's something that as a movement we can start to push for. But beyond these short term fixes, we've got to recognise that. The crisis that we've got at the minute, it didn't just happen because of inflation and it didn't just happen overnight. It's been a long time coming. And to tackle it, we need to restructure our economy. We've got to give people job security and we've got to change the way that we look at how the economy works and how our business culture works. So the first thing that we should do is to tackle in-work poverty. We should have rent support and rent controls as rents outstrip incomes. We should be settling public sector pay disputes and we need to see corporate governance reform right across the board to stop the profiteering that we're seeing at the moment. And that can be everything from workers on boards to alternative models of ownership to reforming the law around directors' obligations. Now, beyond that legal reform, we've got to invest because the only way that you're going to grow the economy, if you like, and create the jobs of the future is with huge levels of public investment and that means that we should be investing in a real green new deal not tinkering around the edges and scaling things back because the fact is is that we're running out of time to tackle climate change as the intergovernmental panel on climate change said last week if we don't take action now we won't have a world to live in but we can use that as one of the biggest economic opportunities that we've ever had and then finally And this is very important. One of the things that commentators talk about when they talk about how we tackle inflation, they say, well, you can either depress wages and potentially cause a recession, that will tackle inflation. But the only other way to tackle inflation is to tax. Now, we don't have a fair taxation system in the UK. We've got a system where tax from wealth is actually taxed lower then people are taxed for their income tax. And that's not right. So by making simple changes and just making it fair, we can raise money, create fairness within our taxation system and also help to alleviate inflation. And I'll just end on this point because there's been interesting analysis from groups called Tax Justice UK and another group called Patriotic Millionaires who aren't left-wing by any stretch of the imagination But they said that the government could raise up to £50 billion just by reforming the way it taxes wealth. And they also found, interestingly, and something that I hope that our own party will pay attention to, that a YouGov poll found that 78% of voters support an annual wealth tax on those with assets worth over £10 million. So public opinion is there. We've just got to make sure as a movement we're pushing in that direction of travel, because that little package really is the only pathway out of the economic situation that we're in. But in the meantime, as I said at the start, it's not workers who caused this crisis, and it shouldn't be workers who have to pay for it. So full solidarity to all workplaces who are taking strike action. And it's up to all of us across the labour movement to make sure that we've got their back that we're on picket lines and that we're supporting them through their struggle. Solidarity.
2: Thank you, Rebecca. That was really thought provoking. Some amazing points there as well, especially think with cost of living, how they love to portray it as if it's wages pushing it up. But the vast majority of people haven't seen any wage increases for for years. I mean, I know I I definitely haven't. Um, Next, we're going on to someone from the NEU, Emma Rose, who is the senior vice president of our National Education Union. Over to
5: you. Thank you so much, Fraser, and thanks for having me here today. I'm really pleased to be speaking alongside such a brilliant panel. And as Fraser just said, I'm the um, National Senior Vice President of the National Education Union, uh, bringing solidarity to everyone and talking um, in part of this discussion about how we can strike back against the Tories and the profiteers and fight for a socialist future. And I'm really proud to say that as a union, we've been striking back. We have been striking. We're continuing with our strike next week, and we're currently taking part in a re and if the Tories don't start listening to our members and they don't give us the fully funded pay restoration that we deserve, hopefully when we announce our ballot result, our re-ballot result, we'll be announcing strike dates into the autumn term as well. But this time alongside any SUWT, and the NHT who are also in the process of balloting their members. Back in January, we announced our ballot result, and record numbers of our members voted to take strike action, beating the ballot thresholds that the government put in place designed to stop us taking action. But actually, what they've done is they've made us a movement that has had to organise. It has galvanised our membership like never before, and over 90% of teachers in England voted yes on a turnout of over 53%. And when the government back in April offered us an average 4.5% pay rise to settle the dispute, 98% of our members rejected it in an online ballot and that was a turnout of over 66 percent and two weeks ago we heard that the strb which is the independent pay review body for teachers recommended an increase of 6.5 percent it's below inflation still but it's above what the government wanted to give us in may when Gillian keegan ended talks with us she said she'd wait for the strb report and that the government. Um, And that they would make the final decision on teacher pay for September. We're now hearing reports that the government may overrule this recommendation. And award a pay rise of less than 6.5%, less than the STRB have recommended. This is an absolute outrage, and we think that needs, we shouldn't, any EU members need to be really angry about this. But I think this is an absolute outrage that should make all of us really angry, because investing in a well funded education system where workers feel valued and where children can thrive is an investment in the future of this country. And my God, do we need that at the moment? Um, A few weeks ago, Gillian Keegan said that we couldn't have a higher pay rise because inflation is going up. Now she's saying we can't have a higher pay rise because sorry she said it, we couldn't have a higher pay rise because inflation was going down. Now she says we can't have a higher pay rise because it's going up. But it's not our pay rise. It's just like Fraser said. I haven't seen my pay rise causing inflation. It's excessive boardroom pay and company profits. But while we're organising, while we're meeting like this, talking about the changes we want to see and how we build the fight back, rather than come and sit around the table, the government are talking about how they can stop us striking, how they can. Debate how, debating how they can make it more difficult for us to strike because they want to talk about minimum service level agreements in our sectors to restrict our ability to take strike action. I'd really love to talk to the government about minimum service levels as well, because at the moment, way too many of us um, are working in systems in sectors that are unable to meet certain minimum service levels that the people of this country expect and deserve. A report came out today that said that 700,000 children are being taught in unsafe or aging school buildings in England that need major repairs. Are the children of Eton or Winchester being taught in unsafe buildings where the risk of injury or death from a school building collapse is very likely and critical of course they're not and it should make us all really angry that that's what 700,000 of our children are facing every single day and we should expect and demand better for those children so what we have in common everyone all the striking workers here today is that we're striking because we deserve a pay rise and we shouldn't be shy of saying that we deserve to be paid a wage that means our members don't have to resort to using food banks to feed their families. A wage that reflects, reflects our value. Just like Zach said, our members also want a wage that means they can afford to take their families on holiday this summer. Yes, we fight for bread, but we fight for roses too. And we've seen time and time again what this government values, and it is not us and it's not our public services. So we're striking for our dignity to be paid properly as workers. But we're also striking because we've seen the sectors that we work in brought to their knees by 12 years of austerity. And just like Rebecca said, just the word then, the alarm, we are sounding the alarm bell um, that the services the public rely on, our NHS Our education system, our postal system, our communication system, all of our systems and sectors that we rely on, our fire service, um, are in danger of disappearing or changing beyond all recognition. And we're saying that we cannot carry on like this. And when all the unions and all the people that are represented here today, represented different sectors, stand up, sound the alarm bell, vote to go on strike and tell you that their system is in crisis, the public need to start listening and we need to make them listen. So we're striking back against the Tories. We're fighting for a socialist future by building our unions in the workplace. Just like I I think it was um, Zach said, you know, activity builds the union. Um, It builds confidence in the union. Since we announced our strike action in the NEU back in January, we've gained over 60,000 new members. That's 60,000 people who believe that they have the power to make a difference 60,000 people who like me and so many of us here believe that the way we change society, the way we build a fairer world for everyone, where our workers are valued, where our systems work properly for everyone, not just for the rich and the wealthy, where we welcome refugees into our country, we don't demonise them and push them back at the borders. The way that we build that fairer society is by building our unions in the workplace. This is a government we've got at the moment that they're out of depth, they're out of touch, and very soon, hopefully, they'll be out of office. But it's not going to happen without us fighting back. It's not going to happen without us coming together. And it's not going to happen without us building in the workplace, having those conversations with our colleagues in our unions, building the unions and building the strikes and the fight back. So solidarity with everyone and looking forward to fighting alongside you for a better world and a better society that works for everyone.
2: That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Emma. And I'm sure a lot of us will be joining our NEU comrades on the picket lines once they come out. I know I will be. Um, I'm really pleased to say that we've got over 250 people watching live across all platforms now, and that number's steadily growing. Uh, we've got people joining from Birmingham, Chesterfield, Cunnan Valley, East London, Edinburgh, Hackney, Islington, Newcastle, Norwich. Warwickshire, West London, Southampton, South Wales and we've also got people joining from Ireland as well which is absolutely fantastic and it's great to see so many people watching. Um, we're now going to go over to Beth Winter uh, MP.
6: Oh, thank you very much, Jochen Val Fraser and thank you to Arise and the volunteers for inviting me this evening. And I really do appreciate the invitations to your events and the opportunity to also write for your sister website, um, Labour Outlook. And we had an article in there um, only yesterday. Um, and I also just want to thank everybody for the outstanding support in, in recent weeks. So, comrades, we are living through so a cost of living crisis, coming on top of an era of austerity, which is transfer- transferring millions. In fact, billions of pounds from working class people and from the public services they rely on into private provision and private profit. Major corporations, starting with the banks we bailed out back in 2008-2009, from energy and water companies to the private rail companies and to the food providers. They're profiteering, raising prices, raising markups and increasing profits at our expense. Is paid for through our energy bills, our water bills, our food shop. And all the while, as inflation goes up, the government blames pay demands of trade unions, despite the fact that people's incomes are falling. Pay awards are consistently below the rate of inflation, dragging it back down from the highs caused by profiteering. For millions in the public sector, the government calls the shots and has held pay down below inflation for 13 years. We fear the Prime Minister only this week, who's worth in excess of £700 million, saying to us, hold your nose. Shameful. And we've heard the chief executive of the Bank of England, whose salary is over half a million pounds a year, say we need pay restraint to hold down inflation. But it's all pay demands that are driving inflation. Even the major financial institutions say so. The Bank of England this week said, and I quote, pay growth in lower paid sectors like wholesaling, retailing, hotels and restaurants has been broadly flat And the Bank for International Settlements has said firms are now more reluctant to accept profit squeezes and will pass on cost pressures to prices more readily. The IMF has said it is incumbent on policymakers to support recovery in real wages at a measured pace and firms accept a compression in the profit share. So, even the main financial institutions of the neoliberal economic system think firms need to play it safe and rein in profits. And that's because trade unions are asserting themselves and solidarity to each and every one of you who've had to, been forced to go on strike. And they're asserting themselves to take the money back for working class people. The people, us, who've created the value and the money. So we all need to be part of that challenge to the economic orthodoxy. Support your unions, support your campaigns, support your local organisations to win back what is ours. But I also want to briefly say something about the next election and policies the Labour government um, should have and will have if it is elected, I hope. Now, we all want the Tories thrown out. But the election of a Labour government never has been the summit of our ambitions because those of us on the left seek to impact the government of the day, whoever it is. The Tories are in government now and we are demanding a better public sector pay deal. The Labour Party may be elected next time and we may still be demanding a better public sector pay deal. A new Labour leadership will always seek to differentiate themselves from its predecessor. And when we've had 13 years of Tory government and Labour is riding high in the polls, some of the members do not want to rock the boat. But there are some key policy areas I don't think a majority of the membership want to compromise on. And we have to identify them and organise around them. They're on living standards, public sector pay and the provision of public services. And I just want to pick out three which have been in the news this week that I think we should all get active on and encourage a rise and socialist future to act upon. They are firstly public sector pay. Labour members and Labour MPs do not want to cut key worker pay. We must fight on that. Secondly, universal free school meals. In Wales and London, where Labour is in power, we are introducing um, universal free school meals in primary schools in Wales. So let's work with the Welsh Government and start planning how we roll it out in secondary schools. We can't stop at primary education. And thirdly, rent controls and social housing. The housing crisis is a source of so many social ills And we end that with rent controls and a mass social house building programme to reduce rents. We know what needs to be done. We understand the problems, we live the problems, and we need to get out and tell people to act and to organise in the pubs, in the supermarkets, on the bus, on the train, wherever we are. And we've got to make clear demands. And let's not wait for the election of a Labour government. We've got to get out and do it now, just as our trade union brothers and sisters are doing now. You may not be in the Labour Party, you may be in the Labour Party. You may be in a trade union or you're in a tenants organisations, or volunteering in a food bank. There are plenty of places to talk and organise. And that's what we're doing back home in Cannon Valley and South Wales We just need to organise on the same agenda with the same goals for income rises, price controls, better public services, tackling critically the climate crisis. And when there are collective events, we must come together and generate that political pressure together to win together. And I just want to finish um, on, on a quote from Nae Bevan, whose writings in Tribune have recently been published by the University of Press in Wales. And I just want to um, refer to a short uh, quote from an article that he wrote back in July in 1938. So that's about 85 years ago, but could apply just uh, uh, as much today. Back then, capitalism was at a tipping point, as it is now. It is clearly broken now. And back in 1938, Nye Bevan wrote, and and I'm just going to quote from it, the General Council of the Trades Union Congress should meet and prepare their plans. Part of this plan should be an all-round increase in wages, and to this end, a national campaign should be launched. Having for a subjective industrial action, and a key demand should be for increases um, in wages. Um, it's time now that we organise, and it is now time that we arise. My name's Serenity Akiem Nol. So let's do that together now. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Beth. That was fantastic. and That's an amazing uh, quote there from Nye Bevan. I'm sure which a lot of us will feel very inspired by. Um, next, I'm going to pass uh, straight on to Matt Wilgris, uh, who is an organiser with the RISE Festival.
7: Thank you, Fraser. And it's great to have you and the associate uh, Future comrades co-hosting this with us, livening us up, which is something we all need after a long month, I'm sure. And um, thank you to all the speakers as well. I'm going to start with a quote as well which is, the most revolutionary thing one can do is always to proclaim loudly what is happening. These words from the great socialist Rosen Luxemburg are so relevant to the situation we all face. We need to loudly proclaim what is happening, what our broken economic system is doing and how deep the crises we face are. The ruling class offensive here, as our speakers have outlined, is massive, ongoing and set to get much worse. We already have a human and social catastrophe. 4.2 4.2 million children in poverty, at least 270,000 people are homeless in England, and more than 1,300 people in the UK died whilst homeless last year. And everyone knows how bad the wages situation is. But as today's speakers in the PCS and other unions are showing, they aren't getting away with it and they mustn't be let off the hook. And that's why with these events we support and give a voice to all people resisting, including those on strikes and all those vital social movements and also to those young workers and students fighting back, which is why, as I said, we're so pleased to have Socialist Future with us today. To close, I would also emphasise the importance of our socialist internationalism and climate activism. Some of you will have heard that the great Peruvian campaigner Hugo Blanco passed away this week, a living connection with struggles in Latin America from Che Guevara's time to ours, and one of the first self-declared eco-socialists. Two quotes from him say a lot about what we must do. The first is this. Capitalism systematically perpetuates attacks on ecosystems that threaten the reproduction of life in its continuity. Forest fires, water shortages and poisoning and natural disasters are the result of this system's contempt for life. We can't delay backing radical solutions to climate catastrophe or backing militant movements for climate justice. Our very future now depends on it. The second quote where he was speaking with regards to Latin America is this. Our countries are by no means independent. Today, they are ruled not by a colonialist country, but by the World Bank, the IMF, and the corporate multinationals which plunder the planet. And that is why today we stand with all those fighting for a different world in Latin America and beyond, and a socialist future where people and planet, not corporate profiteers, come first. As Patrick said, this year's Arise has been bigger, better, and more radical than ever before. Now let's make the rest of 2023 a time of wave upon wave of resistance, where we put our values of solidarity, peace and unity into practice. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Matt. That was brilliant. And I think a lot of us are going to leave uh, this year's Arise Festival, having taken a lot of uh, important lessons about solidarity. Uh, And a lot of us have learned how, again, we can go away fighting harder. And it's only by fighting together that we can win together um the next uh, speaker needs no introduction uh, but i'm going to pass you on now to john mcdonald uh, mp over to you john
8: can you hear me all right i'm down yeah. in um bournemouth i'm at um speaking at a rally this evening with um uh, 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 it's at the rmt conference down here and i'm with this sort of relatively unknown first time speaker do you want to see who it is
9: hello how you doing
8: <laughs> greetings <laughs> Nick and I are about to go on a platform outside the local constituency Labour Party have organised it. Look, my three minutes are going to be fairly straightforward, Okay, I just want to follow on from what Matt has just said uh, about the state of the country, really. Fourteen and a half million in poverty. Matt said about 4.2 million kids. I think it's about 5 million now. Two-thirds in households where someone's in work and so they're in poverty because of low pay. And people forget we've still got 2 million pensioners living in poverty as well. And if, you, if you're if you disabled or if you've got a disabled person in your family, you are living in poverty almost automatically within the society that we've got. So it's, it, my view is just get angry. You need to get angry. It's 13 years of austerity, but also... We need to confront the economic arguments they're throwing at us at the moment. And the issue is this, basically. When the banks crashed, and I'll be saying this later in the hall, when the banks crashed, everyone saw how the system worked. There was a a casino out of control, bunch of speculators making fortunes at our expense, gambling with our money. And there was a sort of a window of opportunity where people understood what was going on, and we could have built on that. We didn't. And what happened was we lost the argument because the argument wasn't being put by the Labour Party at the time because we were still adhered to neoliberalism. And then Osborne came along, and instead of the banks being bankers being blamed for the crash or the banks, it was working class people who got blamed, or the Labour government for spending too much on nurses or education or whatever. And instead of the bankers paying for the crash, it was working class people who paid for it for 13 years of austerity. That's what the Tories did. And we've not got to allow that to happen this time round. We've got to win the intellectual argument as well. So when they tell us that actually we're facing a wage inflation spiral, we've got to absolutely confront that. There's a really good young economist called Isabel Weber, and she's done the recent papers on inflation. It's worth getting hold of them and looking at them. And what she's saying, basically, is what we've been arguing for for the last 18 months this is not, how can it be a wage inflation spiral when wages are below the rate of inflation? What this is, is a profit inflation spiral. And the reason those profits have arisen is as a result of the mismanagement of the economy as we transition out of COVID. What Isabel says, and is, I think is a good, a good lesson, really. you look at history of how you manage crises. When we had a crisis in the Second World War, and obviously the economy was devoted to war rather than to production, to transit out of the war economy, what happened was the economy was collapsing around ears, like right across Europe, and there were shortages. And as a result of that, prices started to go up. So what did the Atlee government do? It's exactly as, as, as Beth has just been arguing for. You control prices and you prevent profiteering. And even the Tories in the 1950s continued on with price controls and with an excess profits tax that the Atlee government brought in. So what's happened now, we're coming out of COVID, production collapsed across Europe as well as across the globe. Supply chains broke down. So, of course, there were natural supply, well, there were bottlenecks in the supply of the goods that we rely upon, food, energy, and all the rest. What then happened, of course, prices went up. But what's happened, actually, most of those prices are now stabilized. But what we've got is corporations maintaining their profit margins and profiteering, so and it isn't you know it's food stuff it's food production energy still but it's across the whole range of sectors in our economy as well. What do you do? You learn the lessons of the nineteen forties and fifties. You introduce price controls. I we've been arguing for price controls on energy more effective introduced, but also we've been arguing for a while now for price controls on basic foodstuffs. But it's also about things like rents. Rents are in in central well rents in all of our city areas have gone up between 15 and 20% at the moment. If you look at the profits that are being made, I just use Tesco's for food. Tesco's £2 billion worth of profits, £400 per household per head over the last two years, solely in profits. They've been giving massive dividends out to their shareholders, but also they've been doing share buybacks to increase their bonuses. All of that is absolutely profligate. So what we need simply is a government that will manage us through the transition. It does mean pro- pro- price controls, but it also means rent controls. I regret deeply that release and Andy today has rejected rent controls. It's what Sadiq Khan, Andy Burnham, Jamie Driscoll, you name it across the country, the mayors across the country have asking the powers for as well. But also we've got to we've got to in- in tackle profiteering. The best way of doing that is excess profits tax. Right the way across the economy, any sector that's making excess profits, you tax them. That will force them to start investing back in their own sectors to, make, to invest for the longer term. But in addition to that, that, excess profits can then be taxed, can then be used to pay decent wages. Because the one thing we can't do is allow any more... Rate rises to take place without opposition. The Bank of England is increasing interest rates. What that does, in effect, is an attempt to create a recession so that wages, so unemployment increases and workers are frightened to put it in for wage rises because they're worried about losing their jobs. It's an induced recession. We've got to oppose that totally. And in actually, interest rates themselves are inflationary. So it's quite clear we should be arguing for the management of the transition post-COVID Tackle excess profits, tackle control of prices. And at the same time, my view now is halt the interest rises. And if we want to protect people's mortgages, it's straightforward, really. The banks made 37 billion pounds worth of profits last year. In the first pro- quarter of this year, the profits are even higher. So therefore, we actually get the banks to cough up and we don't increase mortgages, but we take from their profiteering. That's my view forward. We've got to win the argument. This is not a wage inflation spiral. It's a profiteering inflation spiral, and we've got to get that across in all the discussions we had. Next time round as well, look, we've got industrial action continuing to take place because people want decent wages. Some unions are settled, but they'll be back here again in a few months' time. And we've heard from the government already that they're not even going to abide by pay review body rewards. Unfortunately, we've heard that from the Labour Party as well. That will just simply incite more industrial action as people desperately want a decent way so they can keep a roof over their heads and feed their children. What's our role in all of that? Support, solidarity on those picket lines, yes, in Parliament, but in every meeting we possibly can, supporting each other in this struggle that's building up for the future. So I'll go, I better join Mick now on this platform in, in sunny Bournemouth. Okay, so solidarity, comrades.
9: Have a good one.
2: Solidarity and thank you very much, there, John, and the special surprise appearance from Mitt Lynch, which was very unexpected but also very welcome. Um, I think a lot of what John says there really resonates, um, especially with uh, young people who are often on the front line of a lot of these issues, whether that's as young workers or as students. Um, so, we're now going to go on to a few of the socialist future members of the Labour Students National Committee, who are playing a really important role in fighting for a demarketised and free higher education sector. Uh, First off, we're going to go over to Joshua
9: Freestone. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you all. I want to start by thanking everyone who's here. It's amazing to see comrades from across our party and our movement brought together in the hope of educating, agitating and, of course, organising. There's no feeling quite like that of solidarity, and it really is events like this that remind us that by the strength of our common endeavour, we achieve more together than we do alone. I'm here to talk a bit about the crises in capitalism and how they've come to define the lives of young people, and in particular students. Our universities are broken. The tuition fee system is a failed experiment that has necessitated the naked exploitation of both staff and student alike. Having faced two years of global pandemic, students are now facing the brunt of both the housing and cost of living crisis. A survey done by the National Union of Students recently has shown just what hardship students experience. This survey showed that 96% of students are cutting back on spending, with almost a third left with just £50 a month after paying rent and bills. Whilst students have been trying their best to navigate this crisis, universities have been busy but in new ways to make even more money. Universities across the country have been raising accommodation charges. At my own university, Durham, they've announced a huge 10.3% hike in the rent. This is the biggest rate in years. And this means that Durham University will be expecting students on the average maintenance loan to fork out an extra 4k a year just to cover housing costs. Durham has the lowest state school intake of any university with a reputation of being stale, pale and male. But now working class students are being completely priced out of this institution with university accommodation costing roughly 150% of the average maintenance loan. While student rent has been hiked, staff pay has been slashed. Staff at universities have had their pay cut by 20% since 2009 alongside a wave of ruthless casualisation. Management would like to tell us that there is no money, but higher education sector is hoarding approximately £44 in reserves, and the heads of the sector have never had it better. This is why the UCU have joined workers across the country in returning huge mandates for industrial action. These monumental responses fly in the face of blatant intimidation from management and the most draconian anti-trade union laws in Western Europe. Rather than entering negotiations, university management would allow thousands of students to leave three years of education with absolutely no degree. This refusal to enter negotiation is indicative of how our universities are being transformed, transformed into places of profit rather than people, into places of business rather than learning. This is why, as socialists, as trade unionists, we must demand an end to the tuition fee system. Rampant profiteering has left higher education in existential crisis. Yet as far as the Tories are concerned, students are simply political footballs to be deployed in their cynical culture wars. Our universities are broken. Student debt is rising and staff pay is declining yet the government has no answers. But shamefully, neither does the Labour Party leadership. Keir Starmer's recent commitment to the failing tuition fee system is an abject betrayal of all the students who have tirelessly campaigned for our party. This is symbolic of how higher education and students are repeatedly overlooked and undervalued in British politics. Our generation have been viewed as expendable votes that neither party ought to pander to. But students won't be silenced in the face of complacency and cowardice. Across the country, we are making our voices heard and making our interests known. From rent strikes, occupations and picket line solidarity, there's a new wave of militancy on campus. In the Labour Party, young people have elected left-wing majorities on both the Young Labour and National Labour Students Committees. With these majorities, we've been organising student presence on picket lines and opposition to tuition fees. With the hope that this year we might bring a motion to national conference in favor of tuition fee abolition cementing the values of free education in our party this is all part of a much wider struggle but i believe victory is within grasp thank you and solidarity
2: thank you very much josh that's brilliant to hear from you there and especially on the front of rent strikes and occupations uh, which i myself have been involved with up in manchester uh, i can attest to exactly how universities. Uh, are willing to treat students like absolutely nothing more than a source of income on a spreadsheet. Uh, So that's brilliant. Um, We're now going to go over to Alex, who is the Trans Officer for the Labour Students National Committee. Um, Over to you, Alex.
10: Hello to you all. It's an absolute privilege to be able to speak to you today as part of the Socialist Future caucus on the National Labour Students Committee. Um, Suffice to say, it's been an interesting time to be a young member of our party. After COVID and in the midst of a cost of living crisis, young people are more desperate than ever for radical solutions to their problems. Whether it's a Green New Deal that addresses the climate crisis while delivering millions of good unionised jobs or abolishing tuition fees to release students and graduates from a vicious debt trap, the need for a socialist vision has never been clearer. It is then obviously disappointing that we have the worst possible people at the worst possible time in this ambitionless Labour front bench. But the absolutely key takeaway for me is this. We cannot afford to lose hope. What I see throughout our Labour movement is good, principled socialists. And it's especially those young members I speak to every day in our university Labour clubs, our CLPs, our trade union youth wings, the socialist movement of the future that makes me absolutely sure that tomorrow will be a brighter day. You can cut all the flowers, but you can't stop spring from coming. Whether it's on our picket lines, on rent strikes, in rallies and in our communities, young people are fighting for the things that matter. For fairer distribution of wealth, for a transformed education system, for a fair deal for workers. The system isn't working for us, and I assure you, we are fighting back. Now, I want to speak briefly about an area very close to my heart. I know it will be the same for very many of you who are organising for change. The trans community, both in Britain and around the world, are under ruthless, sustained attack. In just the last few weeks and months, we've seen a vicious step up in the culture war against LGBTQ+ plus people, as well as the utterly monstrous use of Section 35 in January to prevent the Scottish government making trans lives a little easier north of the border. We've seen leaked guidance from the Sunak government that would force absolutely draconian measures on LGBTQ+ plus young people. The leaked guidance would force teachers to out questioning young people to potentially abusive parents. Opening an awful can of worms that would only serve to put children in danger, not keep them safe, as the guidance suggests. Even worse, it removes our young people from having any agency at all over this. Far from being able to explore their identities safely and with support from their parents and teachers, they're being forced into the margins and back into the closet by this souped up Section 28. Furthermore, the guidance gives schools the option to be able to deadname and misgender their students. I'm sorry, but to me, this doesn't sound like an extension of a duty of care. This sounds like cold, old fashioned bullying, a measure designed to stop young people being able to feel comfortable and safe. It goes without saying that Socialist Future stands firmly against the Tory attempts to divide our communities and make trans lives unbearable. We stood shoulder to shoulder with those on the front line of bigotry and abuse, both in our communities and in the Labour Party. It's a source of great pride to me that there were socialist future reps on Labour students and young Labour national committees that pushed for our organisations to publicly state that Rosie Duffield should lose the Labour whip for her utterly vile transphobia. We've been unequivocal in our support for reform of the gender recognition system in the UK. While the Labour front bench minces their words and makes damaging U turns, We've stood our ground demanding a self-ID system of gender recognition, as our sister parties in Spain and Germany have implemented. We've also fought for a properly funded and absolutely nationalised National Health Service for everybody in the UK, so that trans people are able to receive the gender-affirming care they need to thrive. To close, I'll make one very simple point. All the Tories have is hate and division, while we have love and solidarity. The Labour Party will, sooner or later, become the party we need it to be. It's the young members and amazing socialists I meet every day that reassures me of that. In the meantime, we will carry on fighting, for the many, not the few. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Alex. That's really good to hear. I'm very inspiring as well. I think some of the stuff which has come out from the Labour front bench, refusing to stand up for trans members of the party, especially from people who somehow still have the whip like Rosie Duffield. It's been absolutely disgusting. It's brilliant to see young socialists and young members of the party like you fighting back against that, which we really do need. And we need a Labour Party which is going to stand up for every oppressed group, especially those that the Tories are targeting. Um, I'm going to pass on now to the third speaker, Uh, from the Labour Students National Committee, uh, Libs.
11: Thank you, Um, it's an absolute pleasure to be speaking alongside so many comrades this evening and a big thanks to Arise for hosting the space for us. Um, I'm Libs, I'm one of the ordinary representatives uh, on the uh, first ever democratically elected Labour students, uh, proudly a socialist, trade unionist, uh, youth worker and organiser. Uh, Growing up under Tory rule and austerity, I'm part of the collective of younger working class people who've been subjected to ongoing and avoidable hardships. From cuts to our public services to to the ongoing aftermath of horrific policies such as Section 28, which have been rightfully repealed 20 years ago this year on uh, the 18th of November. As a youth worker, I see how these issues that impacted my generation are only worsening for the next I'm from Norwich, a city where people across many causes have been organising against the right-wing ideology, policy and media vitriol. While it can feel like there's little space for socialists and mainstream party politics at the moment, through community organising and collaboration, we continue to build the fight back. Norwich, like most areas across the UK, is experiencing housing, a housing crisis, a crisis created by allowing landlords to hoard housing and keep it in poor conditions and a failure of consecutive governments to build sustainable, affordable, high quality social housing. Young people in particular are left paying extortionate rents for housing that is in desperate need of upkeep from its owners who seem content to allow properties to rot with tenants inside so long as rent is being paid. We, Generation Rent, Never able to save up the money for our own deposits, as we're expected to spend over a third, sometimes a half of our income to afford the roof over our head. This money goes directly into the pockets of people who already own their properties. And when we try to challenge these poor conditions, we find the power is always in the hands of the landlords. Despite revenge evictions being outlawed, the fear of being served a Section 21 or a no-fault eviction, if you complain about the standard of housing or your landlord's practice, hangs over almost every private renter. We hear a lot about not all landlords, but ask any renter and there'll be plenty of examples of the bad landlord practice, so there must be somewhere. So what can young people do when the system of housing is so rigged against us? Uh, in Norwich, a group of us decided that we'd had enough and launched the Norwich Renters Collective, a space for us to campaign at a local level policy change which puts the power back in the hands of renters and the housing emergency at the top of the national agenda. We started our campaign work by conducting a listening research project. We didn't just hand pick a random issue, we listened to our friends, our neighbours, strangers to hear what the biggest issues faced by people in the city were. You might have guessed that the cost of renting was number one issue and people made it clear they wanted more social housing, not more unaffordable housing. We built a vibrant local campaign determined to put social housing at the top of the local agenda. With a huge, unaffordable development on the horizon for Norwich, we launched our campaign to ensure the local council stuck to its commitment to make sure at least a third of all major housing developments were truly affordable and social housing. We were determined to reach people who care about this issue who might not have been involved in a campaign before. We we canvassed in areas affected by the housing emergency. We went on pub crawls across the city to talk with people in pubs. We designed posters, beer mats, stickers, flyers. We wrote to the local paper, to councillors and launched a petition signed by a thousand people. We had hundreds of conversations with people who all understood the importance of affordable housing in our city and who wanted to make sure that the developments work for people, not just for profits. Unfortunately, we didn't manage to change the makeup of this development as local councillors narrowly voted it through, but we did succeed in putting social and affordable housing at the top of the local agenda. We made hundreds of local people aware of the council's own policies and commitments to make sure a third of housing is truly affordable, and we engaged people who've decided it's time to take action in the housing crisis. And we'll keep fighting because secure, affordable housing is not a luxury, it's a necessity. Uh, some people might question why I chose to share this example, but it might sound we didn't get the win we hoped for. Uh, to quote Robert Crow: if you fight, you won't always win. But if you don't fight, you will always lose. We didn't win this time, much like the left has suffered many losses over the years. But what we do have is a bigger network of people ready to get involved. And we can see how we will strike next to continue fighting back against the profiteers. Let's not be deterred. Let's learn. Let's organise. Thank you so much for
2: having me. Brilliant thank you very much. Sir. Um, my Wi-Fi might be a bit I'm not sure how well people can hear me unfortunately uh, I'm living in one of the areas which would have benefited very much from Labour's 2019 policy on introducing improved and free broadband um, but uh, with that out the way i um, assuming everyone can hear me all, all right. Uh, We're now going to pass on to the former chair of Young Labour and one of our fantastic uh, NEC members who's standing up for uh, grassroots members of the party uh, and is a strong socialist voice, uh, Jess Barnard.
12: Thanks so much, Fraser, for that lovely um, introduction. Um, It's really nice to be here today and... um... And it's, it's events in partnership with The Socialist Future. And when we launched it um, a number of years ago, I was certainly a bit younger, but um, there's just no way we could have known the scale of the opposition that we were going to come up against, you know, whether that's from the Tory attacks uh, on our civil li- civil liberties or the Labour rights attacks on democracy and, of course, on socialists in our own party. But, you know, we've heard already today there are some brilliant activists still organising and still fighting. I think we can all take heart from that. And it's wonderful to be sharing this platform with the those activists Today, um, I had planned to talk to you about some of the incredible struggles taking place among striking workers and the winds happening across the sector. Um, but as a new kind of urgent bill is moving through Parliament, I think it's um, important today that we as a movement take some time to um, understand this bill um, and to take some action together. And that is the anti boycott bill and the legislation that's moving through Parliament. Um, the government's anti boycott bill, which will return to Parliament at the start of next week for its second reading, it threatens to erode local democracy, it restricts freedom of expression and it completely undermines campaigns for social and of course for climate justice. Um, A huge coalition of nearly 70 civil society organisations made up of trade unions, charities, NGOs, faith groups, climate justice groups, human rights groups, solidarity organisations, all coming together and calling on MPs to reject this dangerous bill in Parliament. Boycott and divestment have been long used to campaign peacefully for progressive change in this country and around the world. They are important tools for accountability and for core elements of freedom of expression, which should be protected in a democratic society. Now, the government has claimed that the bill is motivated by concerns that such boycotts may legitimise and drive anti-Semitism, as these types of campaigns, in their words, overwhelmingly target Israel. Now, we have to be really clear, these claims are wrong and they are intended to stoke fear and, of course, division. Any boycott that discriminates against a section of any community would already be illegal under equalities laws. The call for BDS is a call that has come from Palestinian civil society and aims to pressure those who are complicit with violations of their rights. It is ludicrous to suggest that anti-Semitism is caused by divestment from companies involved in breaches of international law. And that's what this is. And such rhetoric draws a false equivalence between Jewish people and the policies of the State of Israel and the treatment of Pal- and treats Palestinians by a different standard to any other group. There is a long and proud tradition of BDS campaigns, including the Bristol bus boycott in 1963 to protest against a company's refusal to employ black or Asian bus crews, the campaign by women in Britain to reject sugar produced on slave plantations during the 19th century, and of course, divestment from fossil fuel companies. Millions of people in Britain, including many local authorities and universities, were part of the boycott movement to to end apartheid and contributed to the creation of a democratic South Africa And that was celebrated by anti-apartheid leaders, including Nelson Mandela. At the time, similar restrictions were introduced in an unsuccessful attempt to stifle these acts of international solidarity. Had the anti-boycott bill been in place then, it would have forced public bodies to do business with that brutal, racist and criminal regime. And we all know how wrong this would have been. This is a bill that affects everyone and all of our rights, our right to protest, our rights to organise and our rights to demand better. And every voice across civil society should be united against this bill. Now, worryingly, we've heard reports that Labour are planning to abstain at the second reading of this bill, and that there will be a three-line whip imposed on MPs over this bill. And that means that any MPs uh, who who don't go along with the whip may be threatened with losing the Labour whip if they oppose the bill at the second reading. So I think it's time we act together and support uh, MPs who want to oppose this bill. And there are things that we can do to make that happen. So firstly, number one, help us defeat this bill go on to the Palestine Solidarity Campaign website, sign the petition and contact your local MP urging them to reject this bill for the reasons stated. Number two, while this is a terrible bill, it doesn't stop us collectively as individuals participating in boycotts against the private sector, uh, for example, targeting banks. So join those campaigns and show that you won't be deterred by this legislation. And thirdly, speak up as Labour members and make clear that you support boycotts and that you expect the Labour Party to defend our civil liberties against this deeply authoritarian and far-right conservative legislation.
2: Thank you very much, Jess. That was really, really good. Um, And also, I think there's a lot we can take away from that action wise, whether that is research and how we can personally get involved in boycotts, lobbying our MPs and as Labour Party members actually speaking up to make sure that we are supporting those civil liberties, which are so important. Um, We're now going to go over to Kate Dove, uh, who is the co-chair of Momentum. Uh, Kate, over to you.
13: Hi, everyone. And thanks, Fraser. Um, It's an honour and a pleasure to be here to speak tonight um, on behalf of Momentum. As the co chair, as you can probably tell by my accent, I'm from Gateshead in the North East, um, and I currently work at uh, Sport and Trade Unions in Parliament, so solidarity. I'm extremely proud to be where I'm from, but as a region, we've been hit particularly hard. The first time ever, my mum is a, well, she's a teacher and she's struggling to pay a basic bills. My little brother's desperately searching for a job whilst battling the DWP for universal credit and my grandparents are bearing the brunt of our broken social care system. It's vile situations like this, and much, much worse, are now expected to be the norm, because quite frankly, something has to change. Public services are on the the knees. The NHS is in crisis. Corporations are boasting record profits, and the British public, well, we've all had enough of it, i have had enough of this reckless, cruel Tory government, and we're all crying out for real change, as we've all heard tonight. And the evidence shows that our policies remain overwhelmingly popular. Let's not forget Labour's insurgent in 2017 general election campaign. And more recently, electoral successes of socialist local governments, like from Preston to Broxdow to, to Worthing. But to continue the fight for the socialist future, we at Momentum are calling for public ownership of key industries, such as rail, mail, energy and water. Just seems like the most sensible, normal thing, but I suppose this is a society we live in at the minute with this Conservative government. Seems bizarre to me that you can monopolise something that comes from the sky, but here we are. And midwives spread support from Labour members, trade unions, and the wider public. It just shouldn't, it seems like a no brainer. So it's vital that we leverage every tool at our disposal to campaign for transformative policies from the NPF to Labour Conference to fight the Tories head-on. Universal free school meals to a publicly funded NHS transformative policies only boost rather than hinder our electoral chances. So comrades, let's not lose heart. The reason the leadership has to resort to purging and bureaucratic manoeuvres from Jamie Driscoll, which has happened in my region, to Mick Whitley, a great friend of mine, and to Lauren Townsend, just an excellent comrade, is that our agenda is popular and urgent. Well, there, uh, bizarre, my cold microwaved, reheated Blairism is just not up to the crisis facing Britain. And whether it's in Young Labour or the Socialist Health Association or Time for Real Change or Labour students, we're still securing victories. We need to remember that. And at Momentum, we're focused on building for the long term. Whether that's through our political education programs, a new organizing network, or the organizing roadshow that's kind of fo- fo- focused on like bolstering our bases in local government and beyond. We need to keep fighting for change. And I won't keep up too much of your time tonight because I know we've heard some great speakers and I know there's a few coming up. I can see one of my friends, Sarah, uh, which I'm looking forward to hearing from the strikes. Yeah. Um, and so I'll finish with this quote from the late great Tony Benn. Hope is the fuel of progress and fear is the prison in which you put yourself. So keep the faith, keep that hope and solidarity. We're all here together.
2: Thank you. That was really good to hear from that. And I think there's a lot of important things that we can take away from there as well. Um, We're now going to pass over to James Braithwaite from RMT Young Members Network, which I'm sure is going to be great as we've got RMT action upcoming. And I'm sure a lot of us are going to be standing alongside RMT members on those picket lines Over to you, James.
14: Hey, Fraser. Hi, comrades. I just want to give you an update on our dispute at the moment. Currently, we're in two big disputes. We originally were in three. That was on Network Row as well. That has been settled, although that will be restarting again next year when that pay deal ends. However, we're still in two two disputes. First of all, we're on a dispute with train operating companies. This is a dispute that's probably having the most strike action. It's the one that I think most people outside London is going to be feeling the real brunt of. We've got currently planned strike, strike action at the end of July. At the moment, we're in a situation is where the government has given us a terrible deal. They want us to go to, a, to accept a two-stage agreement. The problem with the two-stage agreement and the current one is that what we'd have to do, accept, have to accept the first stage, we'd have to say the dispute's over and so we'd not be able to, to engage in any more strike action, even though the second stage would be, be, have to be negotiated still. This would completely disarm us. This would mean that our members would be massively disadvantaged in the in those negotiations. And would probably see a huge attack on our terms and conditions in those negotiations. Because so that is what we're facing. That is the commonality within all these agreements and what's being put on the table in front of us all at the moment. Our T's and C's are completely under attack. They want us to work more. They want us to work for less. They want us... To, to work horrendous shifts some people moving on to 10 hour shifts people being forced to do weekend work when they don't want to do weekend work you know and this thing that's very universal i work on london underground obviously that's where i know more about what's going on and currently our dispute is uh massive and complicated and you know we're currently in a stage where essentially two things are going on at once we've got first of all the pension dispute this is about uh currently we're on what is no, uh, known as a TFL pension fund. TFL pension fund is one of the best pension funds in the country. Undeniably, It's uh, I paid very little into it, and the employer paid a very large amount into it. But they want to move us off that into the local government pension fund. This would, could see our contributions possibly double. It would also make us liable if that pension fund fails. And now, as that that has been rumbling on, and that has been most, mostly what we've been going on in, on, on for strike action over the last year but now as we move on to in this new stage currently we've entered pay negotiations and as a result of those pay negotiations the company has only offered four percent obviously that has been completely rejected out of hand and at the moment we're in a stage where we are waiting to see what happens with those com- com- talks are going into ACAS and you know it's going to be very long and very fraught about what's going to happen you know we are in a stage where our T's and C's across everyone on the railways. It's just completely under assault. Uh, TFL just this month have said that they want to completely negotiate our entire, all our policies. That's literally everything from uniforms to uh, resting, resting days, to lunch breaks, to even practices at work, how long we're actually taking on jobs. Everything literally wants to be completely renegotiated. Now, the company originally said they wanted to... To uh, just not even write them yet, but just have the unions say that we're going to agree to them, agree to these mental changes that no one really knows what's going to happen, and obviously all the unions have gone around and got no. So now they're going to have to sit down and go page by page, line by line, and negotiate hard on those policies and make sure that we are not being our terms conditions not going to be any worse off than what they are currently. And this is the thing, you know, we can talk a lot about. What, why this is happening, you know, obviously inflation, COVID completely led to a serious um, fall in passenger numbers and that's true. But now we are seeing the fact is these own train companies across the entire board have seen their passenger numbers back to normal. That means they are increasingly in the position to give workers proper agreements, but that is not what's going on. What we are seeing is the Department of Transport Leading these negotiations, forcing us not forcing onto the table agreements that the unions cannot accept. They are agreements that we will are always below, immensely below inflation. There are agreements that are always attacking our T's and C's. They are agreements that are leading to redundancies, large scale redundancies. At TFL, people know about the loans we've had and the fact that. That, that these loans have come with an immense amount of um, terms of conditions themselves and part of them is things like introduction of driver operated only trains which is a completely ludicrous idea. We run a Victorian underground system you could not have uh, driver only train um, uh, automatic trains on those. It's just never going to happen that's just not how this um, this system works and you know these disputes could broadly have all ended a lot sooner and we should be clear on that. And as a union, we're clear on that. The reality is on the companies where the Department of Transport has not been involved in negotiations, there's Transport for Wales, Transport for Scotland. These, the, there has been agreements, there has been settlements. But it's the Department of Transport that is really holding up these negotiations. And, you know, as we go on in our fight, all I can say to you, comrades, please come down to the picket lines, please come and see us show us your support solidarity comrades
2: thank you james i would definitely encourage every single person watching if you're able to get down to your local rmt picket line i'll be down in derby supporting the uh, rail workers out on strike there um before i go on to our last speaker uh, i'd just like to say a few words um for those of you who are still joining and for the hundreds of people who've already tuned in today this event has been hosted by Arise, a festival of left ideas along with socialist future um, I'd like to thank everyone for participating in this inspirational and motivating event and thank you to Patrick, Matt and all of the Arise volunteer team. Our key message from today is that people are on the march against Tory attacks and the profiteers causing the cost of living crisis. We must stand with them in communities and workplace across the country. We will fight back where the Labour frontbench won't take the fight to the Tories. We collectively will and must do it anyway. Moving forward. We know just how important our campaign against the Tories reactionary agenda is, and we must raise the banner of a different kind of society fighting for socialist future. Please all take on board the action links which have been put in the chat, both on the Zoom function and on the various social media platforms. And if you're able to donate to Arise Festival to keep these important events going, please do. We have to build the resistance. So let's do it together. Now I'm going to go to Sarah. Uh, Woolley who is the General Secretary of BFAW. Over to you Sarah.
1: Thanks Fraser and thanks for the invitation to join you tonight. It's an absolute privilege and a pleasure to be here on behalf of the Bakers Food and Allied Workers Union and I mean what a fantastic platform of speakers all showing the importance of standing together and fighting back against a government that doesn't care about working people. They're more interested in ensuring that themselves and their friends get richer and richer, whilst our members, as well as many others, has been touched on tonight are being pushed further and further into poverty and relying on food banks to survive. There's going to be plenty of you watching tonight who have been involved in industrial action over the last 12 to 18 months and are either still going through that process or have settled, at least for now, and as Becky as others have said, no one chooses to take strike action lightly. And it should be a clear message to the bosses and the government that as a class, we are no longer willing to be told to put up and shut up. And we at the Bakers Food and Allied Workers Union absolutely stand with each and every single one of you. There are some like our members in Liverpool, Allied Bakeries and and Burton's Biscuits in Blackpool, who have just started balloting, who are just starting their journey. And I, I couldn't be prouder of our members doing that and making that stance against employers that have made millions through the pandemic and pay their shareholders and the CEO's. Dividends that our members wouldn't earn in years. And I'd like to thank everyone who has donated to our Megaphone fundraiser to support our striking workers in Liverpool. Look out for more dates coming soon. There are others who will be watching who haven't managed to reach the ridiculous but purposeful thresholds set by the government not least of which RCN members who found out yesterday that they had not And a huge shout out to Holly for all the work that she'd done. I know she was supposed to be a speaker tonight. Um, uh, It's not been without the trolls and other disgraceful behavior towards her, but absolutely phenomenal, sister. To those RCN members and others, I know that you'll be absolutely gutted, but know that you've inspired so many others to stand up and demand better. People outside of our movement, and let's face it, over 70% of working people aren't in it, they have learned that trade unions aren't just this greedy general secretary baron person that we're often called by the right-wing media, but the very people in our communities who spend hours every day caring for our sick friends and family members, who have been shocked at the state of the nhs and poor pay that you've had to endure and agree that you as nurses just like food workers posties the various public sector workers education railway workers retail workers bus drivers and the many other key workers deserve so much better than barely scraping by and that they are starting to understand that it's the CEOs and the government and their friends who are milking millions, making millions on the back of workers who are starving and going cold that are the issue and not the people that are taking industrial action. And I've got to ask, you know, use that anger and that frustration at not meeting the threshold to grow our movement, as that is the only way that we are going to physically strike back. If you're a trade union member watching tonight, How active are you in your branch? Have a a look in the mirror. Are you involved in your local trades council or one of the many fantastic and phenomenal community organisations that are working towards the same goals as we are? And I want to set you a challenge. If you are a trade union member, go away, make a union member this week, make another one next week and continue to make members. Not only for your union, but when you're getting on the bus going to the supermarket, into your local Greg's, talking to your poster. Encourage them to join their union too because we've got to work together across the movement to build our movement. It isn't easy. Some conversations will be difficult. Not everyone thinks like we do. Not everyone is left-wing that we will talk to and there'll be some challenging conversations as a result. But we absolutely can't shy away from them if we're going to make a real difference to our lives now but to the lives of the generations of people that follow us, our kids, their kids and their kids. If you're watching and you're not in a trade union, join one and get active within it. Organise your workplace, or if you're not in a workplace, because there are many people that aren't working, organise in your community. Friends, our movement is a minority in the working world. There are more people not in unions who don't know or don't understand their rights then do. And it is our duty to organise those people, show them the value of coming together collectively as a movement to demand and force better, because that's the only way that we're going to change things. Together, we are strong, we are powerful, and we just have to believe it. And that starts by having a conversation tomorrow morning about joining a trade union. Solidarity to everyone that's watching, everyone that's in dispute, and I will see you on a picket line soon.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. What an amazing end to uh, Arise Festival and to this rally. Uh, A massive thank you to you and all the other speakers uh, today and a massive thanks to everyone who's watching, whether you're on Zoom or any of the social media panels. I think there's so much we can take away from this. No one's coming to save us. We have to organise and we have to fight and we have to win together. If you're able to donate to Arise to keep them able to be holding sessions like this in the future, please do. And whatever you can, like Sarah said, have those conversations with people, whether it's in the union, whether it's in your workplace or your community, because only together can we build a
4: movement that can fight back against the Tories. Thank you, everyone, for watching tonight.